0: You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Morning, church. I'm going to disclose to you this morning what my hope is for the sermon before I even get there. So it'll be anticlimactic once we do get there. But I'm going to divulge to you what my hope is for this sermon um, in 1 Peter, towards the end of chapter one. My hope is what we sang during the first set of worship. And my hope is what uh, the psalmist David penned in Psalm 42. Listen to these words, they're just so soothing. As a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God. My hope today is that we would have a hunger, a thirst, and a desire for God today by the end of our, our time. If you've been following Christ for a very long time and things are a bit dry in your life, my hope is that you would hunger and thirst for the living God. If you're new and you are spiritual and you're here because you bet someone, like I'll go, you go to my church and I'll go to Folsom Street Fair, whatever it is that you did to get here and they got you here, you're longing for something, and I, I hope today that your longing would kind of end and then begin again through God. It would end in going, I'm not searching for anything else because I found God, and then it would begin because you would thirst for God your entire life. That's my hope. That's my goal. I don't know if we'll get there, but that's my hope that the Holy Spirit does. So First Peter chapter 1, let me read this to you, and, um, and let me pray. Let me back up, starting in verse 22. Pastor Dave Bailey taught on this passage last week, but I'm going to move ahead. So verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that, or for, for a sincere love for each other, you've been purified so you can love each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave or desire pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father, it is my prayer today that we as a church would desire you, that we would thirst for you, that all of our other pursuits Everything else that we desire we would, would cause us to hunger all the more for you because none of those things satisfy. None of them satisfies like you do. So I pray for a holy longing in our church today that we would be a people, a family, a community called out, exiled, so to speak, as Peter uses that language, in the San Francisco that longs for God, that thirsts for God, that desires God, and as we love you, Lord, as we love you and pursue you, we would become more like you, that you would transform us into your image, that our likes would reflect your likes, our desires would reflect your desires, our even dislikes would mirror your dislikes, God, that you would give us your heart, and we all have this, if we've been born again, have this new heart in us. It is our ultimate desire, but we confess, God, today that sometimes it's not our strongest desire, our strongest desire is not to love you. And so we pray that you reorder our loves today. We open our hearts for you to do that. I pray this morning that through this sermon that you would anoint me and use me to communicate your word. It's a very humbling thing to stand before this church. So by grace, Lord, would you um, give me words. In Christ's name, amen. We've been a, in a series this fall. Um, in the letter, I had you turn there toward the back of your Bible, the letter of 1 Peter. It's called, the series that we're in right now is called Foreigners and Exiles. And 1 Peter is a letter written um, by Peter, the the same Peter that we meet in the Gospels, the Peter that walked on water, the Peter that denied Jesus, that same Peter, um, writing to uh, people and Christians, churches scattered throughout Asia Minor. And he writes to them, teaching them how to live in a society that is not necessarily friendly to Christianity that is not necessarily friendly to Christians. So he's writing to all these people that are scattered, and they're scattered all over Asia Minor, and he's getting this letter to them, and he's having them circulate this letter, and this letter is supposed to teach these Christians, how do I live in a society that isn't necessarily friendly to Christians, or the gospel? But throughout the centuries, no matter if this letter has gone into uh, situations where the, 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 the environment is hostile to the gospel or it's very not hostile, it's very friendly to the gospel. First Peter has been used throughout the centuries all over the globe, all over the world, Christians worshiping and Malaysia Christians worshiping and Australia Christians worshiping all over the world. It's been used as a letter to teach Christians how to live in their society how to live in the society that they find themselves in, whether it's friendly or not friendly, on how to accommodate, but how to reject certain things, how to live into their environment. One commentator that I've been using um, in this study has probably one of the best one-sentence summaries of what 1 Peter is trying to get at when he writes this. He says, Peter intends his readers to understand who they are before God so that they can be who they are in society. What Peter intends to do is to teach them, and this is how, why Peter starts with all identity statements, who they are before God, this is who I am before God, I've been born again, brought into this new family, through the redemption of Christ, purified by his, the sprinkling of his blood, called out to be holy, that's who you are. Now this is how you're supposed to live in society, so who you, you can be who you are in society. Now that sentence is great. It's a great, oh, it's gone now, whatever. It's a great summary. It's a beautiful summary. But it takes, actually, can you put it back up? Sorry. It takes hard work to figure out that second part. Like the first part is great and it's so good and it means a lot. But the second part, so that they can be who they are in society, that's where the real hard work comes in. How do we do that? That last part is what we've been trying to get at, what we've been trying to learn together as we gather as a community on Sunday mornings and as we scatter as, a, as community groups throughout the week. And the question that we've been wrestling through and been thinking about it, is, how do Christians live in society? How do Christians, how do for the followers of Christ that are here, that call reality their home, um, live in a place like San Francisco? And the reason why we're asking this question is because the gospel always involves a way of living in a given social environment. The gospel always involves a way of living. The gospel is both theological and sociological. It has to do with who God is and who we are now shaped by God that live in society. Christianity is not a private affair. It doesn't just happen in your little heart as you believe that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, like, oh, it's my private religion, it's my private faith, I have Jesus in my heart, and I believe in him, and that's all it is. That's not what happens. That's not what Peter says happens to someone who believes in him, believes in Christ. It actually involves a reorientation. Christianity, following Christ, involves a reorientation of the way you see the entire world and it reorients you the way that you live in this world. So it reorients, you, it reorients your entire world, that you see the world differently, but not just that. It makes you live differently. Christianity is distinct. Now let me speak to anyone in here that might be exploring Christianity, or might have said this, because I hear this a lot from people who um, don't, don't believe, or, and, and they believe something, but they don't believe in Christianity, or they don't believe in a religion, necessarily. And this is what I hear a lot, people saying, um, all religions are basically after the same thing. All religions are the same. Now, first of all, I think that's just lazy. Just so lazy. You've basically just flattened all religions. You flattened them. All religions are not the same. All religions are actually very different. Christianity is very different. What a religion believes about life. Before life, or the world before life, or how we got here, and what a religion believes about the afterlife, where we're going, is different in the Hindu faith, and it's different in Islam, and it's even different in Mormonism. It's different, and not only are those things different, but those things inform the way we live today. I heard, I read recently, a pastor was um, in a conversation with a. a Jewish leader, and he was a Christian leader, and then a Hindu leader, and then some other professors and, and, and secular um, thinkers, and they asked the, the, the people of faith, they said, How, what do you do with suffering? And the Hindus said, well, we just don't believe in suffering, suffering's not a real thing. You've been reincarnated, and that's probably punishment from your last life, and it was, that's what they believe. And then the Christian pastor is just like, can I just tell you that that's a very, very different thing than Christianity? And when you just lump us all together and say we all believe the same thing, it's just not fair. And it's lazy. Because you're not doing hard work to figure out what do they believe and how do they see life? Because one faith just writes off suffering as it's probably punishment for your past life, so you better make it up today. And Christianity thinks of suffering completely differently. Like do the work, stop being lazy. Like if you really wanna flatten our religions, that's just lazy. Christianity is distinct. The way it sees the future world changes the way that we live today. The way it sees our origins changes the way that we see the human body and that it brings dignity to us because we are made in the image of God. So everyone has the image of God like fingerprinted upon them. So no one, everyone is, everyone has dignity. Everyone has worth. See, this stuff comes from like Christian origins. This belief and where we're going where we're going shapes the way we, we we what we do now. Where we what we believe about where we're going. So don't flatten religions like that. The reason why I say this, the reason why I did that little tangent rant thing, <laughs> is because Christian gospel, the Christian gospel, reorients the entire life, and it reshapes desires. It reshapes loves. It reshapes hopes and fears and it reshapes our longings. Because of what, where Christianity is going, because where Christ says that we're going and we, where we end up and what has been done for us in the past, it reshapes us, it reorients us. We live differently. And it does this in such a radical way. It does it in such a radical way, not just in our little hearts, like, oh, God loves me, and like, has a plan for me, and then I keep that in my heart, but it actually reshapes our entire life so much so that the way that we live in any social environment now changes. It does it in such a radical way that Peter now calls Christians foreigners and exiles. He's like, the gospel gets its way into your life and explodes your life with such force that you are actually a foreigner now and an exile to your own social environment. See, the way the followers of Jesus see the world and life therein is so different That the only word to describe them, and this was a word now carried on, this was carried on in tradition, Christianity kind of took this word that Peter uses here and made us like, they've called it aliens or strangers, we're strangers in the land, we're foreigners and exiles, that's what that word means. That word used in verse 1, chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 17, chapter 2, verse 11, Peter uses exiles or foreigners, maybe your translation has strangers, it means literally to be without house that you are without family. That now what has been done to you in Christ is so radical you are unfamilyed. See, in a Roman society the, the way they viewed life was everyone was a family and Caesar was their father. And now that you're in Christ, Peter says, "You're unfamily. You're not part of that family anymore. You're not. A, you're not part of the family of the world or the seed of the world. Now you've been reborn. You've been literally born again into a new family. And God is now your father. And God. Last week we learned who judges one's work. No, no one's work impartially. We have a God who judges all our work impartially. We have a God who we stand before. We have a God who loves us. We have a God who has given His life for us. Now we have new siblings. I mean, just." Okay, just um, let me come down off my like, preachy thing. Look, just look at your neighbor really fast. I always think this is creepy when preachers do this, but I don't care. <laughs> like seriously, I hate when they do this, but I'm here, you're there, whatever. If you're a follower of Christ and the person next to you is a follower of Christ, that is your brother. That is your sister. Like your sibling, okay? That's like, I don't know if you grew up with siblings, I mean that can mean many different things. Like, oh, do I fight them now? What do I do? I take their stuff. <laughs> we have new we have a new family. This is our family. And then we have new traditions. We have new celebrations. It's a new everything. Now, how have you been redeemed? Now Peter's obsessed with this over and over again. He'll, um, Peter's a bit ADD, so I really like Peter. So he'll be talking, 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 and, he's like, and then he starts tripping out on, like, and God saved us and redeemed us, and then back to what he's saying, but Jesus, and he keeps doing that, and he's obsessed with how we've been redeemed, how we've been redeemed. How have you been brought into this new family? This is what Peter is concerned that we get. Peter talks about a quantity, a a, a value to our redemption, and he speaks about a quality, a durability to our redemption. Look at verse uh, 18, uh, from last week, it says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish. If you write in your Bible, write value underneath that. This is the, the value of your redemption. This is the, 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 the quantity, the value of it. It's, you've been redeemed how? By the precious blood. Blood of Christ, but then in verse twenty-three he talks about its durability. Not only is it, is it is it is the value high, but that value is is imperishable. He says, "For you not you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God." That's the durability. Of it. That is the, the the quality of your redemption. It's forever, it will never fade, no matter how much your life is shaken, it will never be moved. That's beautiful. This is Peter's obsessed with us getting this. And why? Why is this so important? Why does Peter over and over again talk about how we've been saved and who we are before God? Because of verse 24. Because life is so darn fragile. Life is so fleeting. Life is so delicate. It's passing. It's quick. If you have ever known anyone that is not with us anymore, who has died, you know the fragility of life. You know how fleeting it is, how passing it is, how quick it is, and sometimes how how unfair it is And so Peter says, all people are like grass, and he's quoting Isaiah 40. All people are like grass. And all their glory is like the flowers of the field. How's that? They're beautiful, yeah, but just really quick. Like the grass withers and the flowers fall. Our glory fades. Our fame disappears. And it never delivers what it promises ultimately it never gives you what you really want. If it does, it's just for a moment. If you go after life and all of its glory and you get it, you get it for a, a moment, like a quick moment. And if you build your life on this earth, as we sang in that first set of worship, if you build your life on this earth, you are investing in sod. You are investing in something that is so fleeting and so quick, no matter what it is that you want. But if you're born again, what happens is, the book of Daniel says, you shine like the stars in heaven for eternity. There's a whole different thing. You're not born of perishable seed. That perishable seed is like literal seed from a man. It's dead. It will die ultimately. But the seed, of the, Lord, the seed of God is eternal. The seed of God is eternal. This is what he's saying. Like we go after life and it doesn't give us what we want. We have fame, but it's just a vapor. Uh, I'm a fan, I grew up in the 90s, so I'm a fan of 90s music. So, me and Pastor Dave Daly talk about 90s music all the time. Like, every time we're just like bored, we're like, okay, what about this band? Like, oh yeah, there?" like, what's this song? And then he starts singing, and I'm like, why don't you sing on Sunday more? Anyway, so, because it's a good voice. Anyway, so, one of these 90s artists that my wife loves, every time the song comes on, she like blasts it in the car. One of these artists who won a, a Grammy for their music um, in the 90s was Alanis Morissette and her album, <laughs> you guys are left. And her album was Jagged Little Pill. I mean, that album was, what I'm not gonna get into it. Anyway, she was recently on Oprah. So yes, I just dropped an Oprah and Alanis Morissette reference <laughs> in a sermon. Um, and Oprah does this thing called Super Soul Sunday, which is like her version of television church, pretty much. And she had Alanis Morissette on it. And uh, uh, Morissette says that she suffers, and this is serious, she suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder. And when Oprah pressed like, "Hey, what was that, what was the trauma? And she says, in all seriousness, the trauma that she experienced was fame, fame. She says that that fame is something that I always wanted, playing small clubs, nightclubs to 12 people, and then selling out stadiums like three months later. This fame is something I always wanted, but I wasn't ready for it when it happened. And it happened so fast and so intense that it was traumatic. And so Oprah, press a little more, tell me more about this. And she says this, this quote. This is from her Super Soul Sunday thing. She says, the traumatized person, this is Alanis Morissette talking. The traumatized person, she says, in this case, me, gets traumatized by the very thing that I thought would be the balm. Balm, not bomb, balm, balm. <laughs> like healing balm, like soothing. So the very thing I thought would, would soothe my life, the very thing I thought would heal me, kills me. Look what she says. She says, I thought that, that all would be helped and healed and soothed by fame. I will be less lonely and I will be understood and I will be loved and that love will go on and heal any of the broken parts. That's what she says. She goes, that's thought I thought. About it. I, went, I went after it more and more and more and it never gave me what I want and it was traumatic to go after something I thought would heal me and it killed me. This is what she said. And this is, guys, this is the human story. This is repeated over and over again. History can be retold by retelling this story over and over again. You can actually, if you redid that, her sentence and just took out, um, took out fame, I thought that all would be helped and healed and soothed by, and you can put your own thing in there. This is the human condition. I thought that all would be helped and healed and soothed by my status, by my education, by my perfect body, by a relationship, by having a family, by my marriage, by getting money, my dream job, acclaim, respect. You plug in whatever it is there. Anything else there. I thought I would be helped and healed and soothed by, and you get it. And, it's, and she calls it traumatizing. And Some people made fun of her on like blogs and stuff like that, but it can be traumatic. When the thing that you think will give you life and soothing and healing, and you get it 100 times over, and it turns out to be grass, and a flower that withers and fades and, and can't carry the weight of your expectation, When you go after this thing and you actually get it, I mean, I'm in a room of people who kind of can get what they go after and you get it and it traumatizes you because it can't handle the weight of your soul. It can't handle your life. It can't do the things that you think it promised. And we all know this. Every single person in here knows this. Even Oprah knows this. Oprah said right after Alana said that, she, says, she said this, this is what Oprah said to her. The truth is, there's no difference between fame or when I get thin, or when I get rich, or when I meet the right guy, then everything will be okay, Oprah says. It's the same thing. Oprah knows it, everyone knows this. This is so human, this is so like, we all live this, we know that human life is fleeting. We know that our glory is like, like a vapor, we know it. And we know the things that we go after in life are fleeting, but we still do it. You're probably doing it right now. We all do it. And You know why we all do it? You know why you keep doing it over and over and over again and you can't help yourself? Because the soil of our life contains the ecosystem to support eternity. Let me say that again, because it sounds super weird. The soil of our life contains the ecosystem to support eternity. This is what Peter's saying here by quoting Isaiah. He's asking, what are you planting? You actually have the potential, the divine potential in your life to support eternity. You carry in yourself the potential for a glory that will never fade if you plant the right seed. If you don't, you'll kill it. If you don't, it'll turn in on itself. If you don't, it'll fade. We get this, we, we just, we, we know it. We know it intuitively that we have this potential for eternity. We know that we're made for something else. We get this glimpse of the potential beyond us all the time. There are moments where we feel eternal. There are moments when we feel weak and we just hope for the eternal, but we know it's there. We can feel it. We know it just right beyond our grasp. We feel it in the foreignness of our environment that we live in. We feel it in the fact that like with the Morissette, nothing that we desire from this earth truly satisfies. C.S. Lewis put it best in Mere Christianity when he said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And you were. Like you have in your, God has made you, once you receive the, the word of God, once you receive the gospel, for it to sprout eternity in you. But we go for cheaper things. We go for lesser things. Like we desire, we are such a consuming t- sort of people, like San Francisco is like the epitome of consumption and and hedonism, like we consume technology, we consume like clothes, stuff we put on our bodies, we consume food, what we put in our bodies. Like we love to consume, we love it. We desire it. And all those things, none of them satisfy. None of them do. You have never got a piece of technology or a pair of jeans or a meal that you said, this is it. I'm never wearing pants again. <laughs> no one does that. You don't. You're like, what's next? What's next? Because you are longing for something that you were created for, but you will not find on this sod, on this earth. Peter says that life is fleeting. And there is only one way to step into a glory that will never fade. There's only one way. And Peter says, receive the living word of God. Receive the living word of God, or the imperishable seed. He says in verse 25, that the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever, and this word was preached to you. Now, what is this word? Now, it's not the Bible necessarily. Okay, don't like, okay, so I need the Bible. You do, but that's not what he's talking about here. The Bible as we know it wasn't written during the time of Peter's writing. I mean there were some letters that were circulating around, but Peter was was not talking about the Bible as we have it today. Pretty much every commentator agrees that this word that we're to receive was the gospel that was preached to them and they believed. The gospel. What is the gospel? I've been I've said that word like twelve times already this term. What is the gospel? One easy way to explain what the gospel is is by observing how the early church preached the gospel. How did the early church preach the gospel? When they would share or preach the gospel in the early church, when Paul, when missionaries went out from Jerusalem in Acts, the way that they would preach the gospel was that they would challenge the things people placed their hope in for their salvation. They would challenge those things. They would call them idols. They'd call them different things, but they would challenge what they put their hope in See, everyone places their hope in something to save them. Everyone is said differently, and this is common. I think this is common. If you choose to agree with me or not, I'll try to convince you. But everyone worships something. David Foster Wallace, an American novelist, story writer. And if you consider his commencement address at at Kenyon College several years ago, a sermon. And I do consider his commencement speech that he gave at Kenyon College a sermon. He was a preacher. And I highly recommend, do yourself a favor and go listen to his speech. It's just like 24 minutes long. Or you can get the shorter version at like nine minutes. I, I commend it to you. I say go watch it. But in there, he says this. He, he, wasn't a, he wasn't a Christian from what we know. But he observed life. About three years after he gave this commencement address, he, he, he took his life. He would observed life. He took it all in. And this speech called, This is Water... He says this, he says, and it's not on the screen, so I'm just gonna read it to you. He says, here's something else that's weird, but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if that is where you tap real meaning in life, you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all all know this stuff already, It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parable, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in our daily consciousness. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. This is the truth, you will worship something and you must be careful what it is because what David Foster Wallace is saying is you will become what you love. Your desire for God or whatever else it is will shape you and you will either become a bright eternal star or some ugly monster that you hate to look at in the mirror. This is what the early church preached. That the real, substantial, eternal life is only found in Jesus Christ. That he is the only one that can handle the weight of your soul and the scars of your sins and your failures. He is the only one worthy of your worship. He is the only one that you can worship and be transformed into love. Everything else will transform you into a monster. Christ will transform you into love. You will be holy as he is holy as you desire him. I was in Phoenix this last week for a wedding. Actually, it was in Sedona, which is way nicer than Phoenix, but anyway. Um, in Phoenix, sprawl, um, just forever freeways everywhere. And we're driving on a freeway, and there's ch- a lot of churches there as well, and then there, there's a sign that was sticking up over the freeway that said, Jesus died so you can live. That's what it said. And I'm driving in a little rental car, and I'm like, what? It's just it's like it feels like such a like a benign platitude. Like Jesus died. like someone's gonna read that and go, He did? Oh my gosh! I need like, what does that even mean? It seems so fake when it's just plastered on a on a really horrible freeway. It seems so fake. But as I thought about it, as I drove another 25 miles, and I was just thinking about it, I'm like, it's true. I mean, this is completely true. And the reason why I don't like it like this on a freeway is because. Every word is packed with so much meaning. Jesus. The Logos, the eternal word that the Greeks believe framed everything, and by it we live and move. And John, the writer of John, says that Logos was made flesh, Jesus Christ. He's the one that created everything. He's the one in him we live and move and have our being, and he took on flesh and he died, and that that word died. The fact that he died means that he lived. He actually took on flesh and blood, the Logos, the God made flesh, God made flesh, lived. And he died a sinner's death on a cross for us. And then you, I mean just that word right there could be a giant volume of writing. You, complex, a competing bundle of desires, half hypocrite, half moral elitist, you and then live I mean this sometimes on a billboard on a freeway in consumer America this seems like Jesus died so I can have my SUV Jesus died so I can be happy that's not what that means this is not your way of life this is not Jesus blessing your attempt at finding happiness this is, this, is, this, is you not, this is not you wanting something in life and thinking that Jesus will get you to it. This life is his life. In your life and exploding everything within you and reframing all your desires and all your wants in your entire world. So Jesus died so you can live means something completely different than what we think. But it's true. See, so the people in Peter's day, What people where, where Peter was writing, are not that different than us today. They had lives, too. They had wickedness in their heart, too. They, had hatred. they hated their landlords at certain times, too. But their landlords were like real lords. They fought their spouses, too. They put masks on to hide the fact that they were screwed up deep down, too. They did all the same thing. So what Peter does as a very good pastor, he says... Therefore, because of what Christ has done, because of you're not born into this fleeting life, because you have eternal life living in you and, and making its way in you, therefore, because of that. Remember, we have we have to ask, what is the therefore? Therefore, remember the cheesy thing from a couple weeks ago? What's it therefore? Because of all Christ has done, therefore, rid yourself. Christ tells Peter tells us who we are. Then he says, This is what God wants. Rid yourself of all malice. Deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Now, here's a strange thing. All these flaws start in the quiet of our hearts. I don't know if you're like envying right now. Like my, probably my hair. I would probably imagine you're envying my hair. Like, oh gosh, that's some good hair. I don't know. I, can't, I don't know if you're envying. Malice in your heart, deceit in your heart. These things are not, it's hard to discern them, but they're in our hearts. We smile but inwardly we think people are disgusting and stupid and we wish they would go away forever. That's a thing, And you're like, oh, you're wicked. No, you think that too, don't lie. That's deceit, by the way. We say we're happy for people when they succeed, but inwardly we hate them for it. And we envy and we think, why not me? Why them, really them? Then we lie to them and say, congratulations, I'm glad, I'm so happy for you. But it's not true. And we're lying to ourselves and we're playing a hypocrite. And we slander. We slander other people. We slander other people as we're walking the streets in San Francisco, we slander other people when we go to other cities, because their cities are not are not, you know, like, like our city or something, we're just we slander, we even slander ourselves. We can be the most liked person in our community group. We can be the most liked person at our work, but inside we hate ourselves. We slander ourselves. We say to ourselves, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not worth anything. And we slander ourselves. Peter, 1 Peter, is a letter about how Christians are to relate to their culture as foreigners and exiles. But he wants to make sure here first that we know how to relate to our own hearts. Do you know how to relate to your own hearts? He does not want us to be foreigners to ourselves nor exiles before God. We have to be at home there. He says, therefore, rid. Get rid of these things. How do you rid? Well, the first one is repentance by just confessing those things and going, I acknowledge them, God. I acknowledge that I have envy in my heart towards my brother or sister. I acknowledge that I have deceit, that I've been lying. I know that I've been playing the hypocrite at community. I acknowledge that I am this and saying, I give this to you, God, I wanna turn and ask for your forgiveness that you would restore me. That's part of it. But it has to be matched with something else, and that other thing is desire or craving. Do you see what what Peter says? Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk. I love, there's a lot, we have a lot of new families at our church. Just everyone's pregnant, it feels like. And they're always in the back, and I love it. And then they start crying, and, and I want you to know that it's not a distraction for me. Like, I don't mind that children are in the sanctuary at all. I don't mind if they start crying and you, like, shush them or, like, hand them off to someone next to you You don't even know. Like, hey, you make them be quiet. I don't know. Like, that's family. <laughs> like, hey, new uncle, here you go. Like, that's a, f- but I think, what, what, what I would love for it to happen when you hear a baby in, our, in the sanctuary, I want you to remember this verse, to crave the spiritual milk of God, to crave it. Peter connects. Now, do not do this. I know there's people in here that know their Bibles. They go, well, I don't really do the milk anymore. I'm onto the meat. (laughs) I'm like super spiritual. Okay. Don't, if you bring that up in your community group, don't even start, okay? Don't do that. This is not an indictment. Peter is not saying, he's not saying you're less than. He actually connects craving pure spiritual milk to tasting that God is good. So in a way, you never mature beyond this. In a way, you never, ever, ever stop drinking milk. When when Paul uses it later on as an indictment, that's not what Peter's talking about here. Peter's talking about pure desire for God. That's what he's talking about. Pure spiritual milk refers to things that nourish Christian community in its growth. Things like the knowledge of God, things like prayer, things like confession, things like instruction in the gospel, obedience, accountability, hearing God's word preach, reading the scriptures, like the pure spiritual milk of God. We are now to crave that as new members of God's family. We are to desire as newborn babies to sit at their mom's breast, like a newborn baby sitting at their mom's breast. Now, this is so powerful, such a powerful image. Not only is the baby who's being nursed at their mom's breast physically nourished by the milk, but their soul is being nourished as they're close, as they're close to their bare chested mom and being held. There is something so good for that, that soul of that child and the physicality of what's happening. And this is the imagery that Peter uses. Like a, a newborn baby, crave that thing from God. Desire God. But all this is predicated in the reality that you have tasted the Lord is good. Because if you've tasted that the Lord is good and that you could be nourished by God and he can give you what you truly, truly desire, not your wants, but your deepest longings, when that happens, you're gonna desire it. You're gonna want it. You're going to crave it. You're going to crave the presence of God. You're going to crave to be nourished by God. You're going to crave God. So, my question is have you tasted that God is good? Your longings for the eternal are longings for God. Your longings for spirituality are real longings for the Holy Spirit of God. Come taste and see that your longings for God are real and that those longings can meet a good God let's pray I pray God that we would desire you that we would desire you more than we desire water that a deer that pants for water we would desire you more than that God that where things are disordered in our lives right now and we feel like we can't even approach you because we're not worthy that we would know that there is grace to be found at the table of communion that there is grace to be found and kneeling before you and saying God help me God help me I'm a sinner what a great prayer God what a great prayer help me I'm a sinner I have this propensity to mess things up. I have this propensity to go after things that don't satisfy. I have been traumatized. I've been traumatized by being unsatiated in the world. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And we find rest In you, in Jesus' name, amen.